0: Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools, and we're here 12 noon every Saturday to defend and promote public education. Now, that's not private education. The two are so different that they can never be reconciled, although there are so many people in the political arena that seem to think that they can reconcile it. And it's really quite simple. Public education is public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access. It is public, it is available for all children, not just some children who happen to be the right religion, right class, or whose parents have got the right bank balance. As well as that, public education should be public in ownership and control, because it is the only one that can be public in accountability and therefore it's the only one that should be public. And that is our stance. We don't compromise on this. We say no state aid for private schools, although we are aware that more and more the uh, politicians in our country are giving more and more and more billions to the private sector, which undermines our public schools. However, good things are still happening in our public schools, however much money goes into the private sector because uh, the private sector is, in fact, a parasitic system. So our press release, 971, deals with the issue of open access and religious discrimination in private schools. The religious lobby up in New South Wales are very upset that the Albanese government might just erode a little bit of their extensive power to impose religious discrimination on teachers and children. Uh, Kim, would you like to tell us about this?
1: Of course, Jean. So this is press release 971, Religious Discrimination in Australian Private Schools. The right to discriminate against children, teachers and other employees on religious grounds has raised its head at the federal level, The Labour Party is once again running scared of the aggressive religious lobby of New South Wales, but the actual situation in Victoria is of interest. According to the Guardian newspaper of 14 February, Anthony Albanese has reiterated that Labour will respect religious schools' rights to select staff based on faith after a backlash from religious groups to a proposal to limit their hiring and firing powers. In February, an alliance of religious leaders in New South Wales and elsewhere rejected a proposal by the Australian Law Reform Commission, the ALRC, to allow religious preference only where the teaching observance and practice of religion is a genuine occupational requirement the group including the sydney anglican and catholic churches greek orthodox church the national imams council and executive council of australian jury wrote a letter to the attorney general arguing the severe limits proposed by the alrc went beyond its terms of reference In January, Guardian Australia revealed the Catholic education sector would oppose the ALRC's bid to remove existing exemptions to the Sex Discrimination Act that enable discrimination and replace it with a narrower right to give more favourable treatment on the ground of religion for hiring employees where it is proportionate to all the current circumstances. In response to a question about the controversy on Tuesday, the Prime Minister told Labour's caucus that we made our position clear a long time ago that faith-based schools can employ people of their own faith. Before the election, Labor committed to protect all students from discrimination on any grounds and to protect teachers from discrimination at work while maintaining the right of religious schools to preference people of their faith in their selection of staff. In the letter, seen by Guardian Australia, the religious leaders praised the Albanese government for asking the ALRC to balance the right not to be discriminated against based on sexual orientation, gender identity, marital or relationship status or pregnancy within the freedom of religious schools to build a community of faith. But they said the ALRC's proposal would introduce an uncertain new test into employment law and put the onus on the school to prove that it satisfied the test, acting as a deterrent from giving preference to one candidate. It seems to me
0: that the Labor Party are trying to have their cake meet and Mm. certainly the religious schools are. They want their cake of all the public money we pay them, but they still want the right to discriminate on the basis of religion and they don't want any, anything to stop them from doing that. So they can't they have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. You can't um, discriminate against children on the basis of whatever their sexual orientation is, if that goes against your so-called faith, because they, they take public money. That's our view, but uh, they want to do that. They want to have the cake and eat it. And the Albanese government, and certainly the Morrison government, and the Dutton government are prepared to let
1: them do that. Back to you. I'll continue on. Religious schools do not seek the right to discriminate on the basis of a protected attribute but simply to be able to employ staff who share or are willing to uphold the religious beliefs of the school, they said. The Shadow Education Minister Sarah Henderson and the Shadow Attorney General Julian Lisa accused the government of breaking their commitment to schools and parents on this issue. Lisa told Sky News the ALRC plan could mean schools can only mandate that the Minister of Religion and Religious Education teacher be of their faith. A spokesperson for the Attorney-General, Mark Dreyfus, said the ALRC inquiry was a crucial first step towards implementing its election commitment, but noted the government will not consider its response until it has reported. The ALRC is an independent agency, the spokesperson said. It is now conducting its inquiry and has not finalised its advice to the government. Dogs believe that if religious schools take public money, they should not be permitted to discriminate against children or teachers in any way. They should be openly accessible, free, secular and universal and become genuinely public schools. And what is the actual situation in Victoria? The Victorian government recently made changes to the Equal Opportunity Act 2010. These changes came into effect on 14th of June 2022 and 14th December 2022. Very interesting these changes, as
0: you as you uh, tell our listeners can be, because the government here in Victoria is trying to have its cake and eat it, I believe. But um, let's tell our listeners exactly what the situation is uh, in Melbourne and throughout Victoria.
1: Of course. So under the changes, religious bodies and schools are prohibited from discriminating except in limited circumstances where the discrimination is reasonable and proportionate or another exemption under the Equal Opportunity Act applies against people based on sex, sexual orientation, lawful sexual activity, marital status, parental status and gender identity. These changes ensure a fairer balance between the right to religious freedom and the right to be free from discrimination. So if they tried to sack a a teacher who uh,
0: was in a um, de facto relationship, they just might have a bit of a problem. Their marital statement or lawful sexual activity, I think that might, uh, that is all a question, isn't it? So um, there's a few grey areas here in Victoria law, I believe.
1: Uh, From 14th of June 2022, religious bodies and schools can only discriminate against employees or potential employees where... Conformity with the beliefs, doctrines or principles of the body or school's religion is an inherent, i.e. core, essential or important requirement of the job. The other person cannot meet that inherent requirement because of their religious belief activity or the discrimination is reasonable and proportionate in the circumstances. So discrimination by religious bodies and schools in other circumstances covers from 14th of June 2022, schools can only discriminate based on a student or prospective student's religious beliefs or activities. However, the discrimination must be reasonable and proportionate in the circumstances and to do so would conform with the doctrines, beliefs or principles of the school's religion or the discrimination is reasonably necessary to avoid injury to the religious sensitivities of adherence to the school's religion. There is no longer an exception for individuals. This means an individual will not be able to discriminate against another person in the circumstances covered by the Equal Opportunity Act in order to comply with their religious beliefs. So what will not change? The government has not changed the law that allows religious bodies and schools to discriminate in relation to the following. Ordaining or appointing priests, ministers of religion or members of a religious order training or educating people seeking ordination or appointment as priests, ministers or re- of religion or members of a religious order and selecting or appointing people to perform functions relating to or participating in any religious observance or practice. And there's more information on what this means for you is available at humanrights.vic.gov.au if you would like to find out more. Now, we thought Actually, our listeners
0: might be interested in this because if you, if you go, go to the official website and you go down and you have a good, good look at what the situation is in Victoria, I'm not certain that what the Law Reform Commission in, in uh, Canberra is talking about is all that different to the Victorian situation. It's just that the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church and various other groups up in New South Wales and throughout Australia, are a little bit worried that what's going on in Victoria, and I suspect down in Tasmania too, will be continued or expanded into the rest of Australia. I may be wrong on this, but um, I think that it's very interesting what is uh, actually in law in Victoria. It's uh, certainly trying to have your cake and eat it, but there seem to be some very grey areas. there. But we'll have a bit of a break.
2: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio eight five five am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio.
0: Well, we hope you're still listening to the dogs program here on 3CR, the defence of government schools. And uh, in our latest press release, which you can find at www.adogs.info, we were talking about religious schools that want to discriminate against teachers and children on the basis of religion. And we the dogs, having spent in 1979 26 days in the High Court of Australia trying to prove that uh, these schools were religious and being told by these people, uh, the religious people, that their schools were not religious institutions but were only educational institutions and that state schools were perhaps more religious than their schools. We are in wonderment at the tremendous battle they're putting up against just a little bit of open access for children and teachers based on their religious beliefs because dogs believe that religion is a matter of conscience and a matter of conscience is private and that taxpayers should not be paying for it anyway and that the uh, industrial law, the employment law, which deals with discrimination should not allow discrimination on the basis of religion in this country of ours. But that's my two penneth worth. We're now going up to Queensland with Dale, and uh, she's going to tell us about the wonderful research done by Trevor Cobalt for Save Our Schools on the wealthy Queensland private schools that are raking in millions in donations. Over to you, Dale.
3: Thanks, Jean. Yes, this article is from Trevor Cobol from Save Our Schools. Wealthy Queensland private schools rake in millions in donations. The wealthiest, most exclusive private schools in Queensland are raking in millions of dollars in donations and investment income. These millions are ignored in assessing the need for government funding. It exposes a major major flaw in how private schools are funded. The flaw means the schools are massively overfunded by the taxpayer. Funding of private schools must be overhauled. New figures obtained from the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, the ACNC, So that 23 Queensland private schools received $118 million in donations and investment income over five years from 2017 to 2021. Donations totaled $84 million and investment income was $34 million. Just nine schools received $83 million over the period. The average income from these sources for the 23 schools was $5 million per school over the five years. Queensland's most exclusive high-fee school, Brisbane Grammar, raked in the most donations and investment income at $20 million over five years, comprising $12.4 million in donations and $7.6 million in investment income. One former student donated two point eight million dollars in twenty nineteen. Ormiston College collected thirteen point two million, that's twelve point eight million in donations and point four million in investment income. Anglican Church Grammar, or Churchy, raked in eleven point seven million dollars, that's ten point four million in donations and one point three million in investment income. Four schools belonging to the Presbyterian and Methodist Schools Association collected a total of $20.9 million, comprised of $9.9 million in donations and $10.9 million in investment income. The four schools are Brisbane Boys College, Clayfield College, Somerville College and Sunshine Coast Grammar. Other schools with multi million dollar donations and investment income include Sheldon College, 8.7 million, All Saints Anglican School, at 8.5 million, and Brisbane Girls Grammar, at 6.9 million. Donations and investment income of these wealthy exclusive schools dwarf other private income of public schools. The average donations and other income of Queensland public schools in 2020 was $250 per student. By contrast, the donations and investment income of Brisbane Grammar averaged $2,539 per Per student. These 23 private schools also received $290 million in funding by the Commonwealth and Queensland governments in 2020. This funding was determined without regard to their donations and investment income. Under the current Commonwealth funding method, Private school funding is determined by the capacity of families to pay fees. This is measured by the adjusted taxable income of families as reported by the Australian Taxation Office. It ignores other very lucrative sources of income for private schools such as donations and investment income. These schools raise additional fees through multiple tax-exempt organisations such as foundations, building funds, scholarship funds, and others. The the donations also reduce the tax burden of the donors, so even more money goes to the private, not public, benefit. The failure to include donations and investment income in determining Commonwealth funding of private schools is a major flaw in the current funding model. It results in overestimation of the financial need of private schools and massive overfunding by the taxpayer. However, it's not sufficient to just include other school income in determining the financial need of private schools because there are other major flaws in the model. A major flaw is the assumption that the parents of students pay the school fees and other charges. This is demonstrably untrue. Many private school students have their fees at least partly paid by their grandparents. The funding model also includes other income provided by grandparents, such as money for house renovations, household assets such as white goods, furniture and IT equipment, cars, holidays and medical expenses that free up family income to be spent on school fees. Over 50% of parents help their adult children with a variety of expenses, including school fees. The Bank of Mum and Dad is reputed to be the ninth largest home lender in Australia. As a result of this direct and indirect financial support for families, which is not recorded in adjusted taxable income, the capacity of private school parents to pay school fees is vastly underestimated and the private schools are consequently massively overfunded by taxpayers. Even apart from these flaws, the current funding model is overfunding many wealthy schools according to its own criteria. Private schools are supposed to be funded at 80% of the schooling resource standard, the SRS, by the Commonwealth Government and the remaining 20% by the Queensland Government. However, many of these exclusive schools are already hugely overfunded by the Commonwealth. For example, Brisbane Grammar and St Margaret's School was funded by at 133% of its SRS in 2022 by the Commonwealth instead of 80%. Brisbane Girls Grammar at 120%. Ormiston College and All Saints Anglican School at 91%. And Sheldon College at 88%. The four schools belonging to the Presbyterian and Methodist Schools Association were funded at 101% of their SRS. The overfunding of Brisbane Grammar amounts to $3 million in 2022. Brisbane Girls Grammar, $1.9 million, All Saints Anglican School, $1.8 million, Ormiston College, $1.2 million, and Sheldon College at $0.9 million. The Presbyterian and Methodist schools were overfunded by $5.4 million. The total overfunding for 17 of these private schools was $28.5 million. Figures for the other six schools, including Anglican Church Grammar, could not be obtained. The current funding model for private schools needs a complete overhaul. The Commonwealth Government's funding model purports to assess the financial need of schools for taxpayer funding, but it ignores millions of dollars in donations and investment income received by private schools and additional income provided to families by grandparents of children in private schools. It's a highly inequitable funding system. It unfairly overfunds private schools while massively underfunding public schools. A new system should be governed by the principle that government funding for private schools should only fill the gap between private income and a revised SRS. The base SRS should be set as the cost of highly successful public schools with minimum disadvantage. Funding for private schools should be conditional on meeting social obligations and education standards. Private schools whose private income is above the SRS should not receive government funding because it extends their resource advantage over public schools. A significant first step towards this model would be to end all government funding for wealthy, exclusive, high-fee private schools. They don't need taxpayer funding it is a complete waste and simply adds to their huge resource advantage over public schools. It is funding that would be better used to support disadvantaged students and schools where additional funding will have much greater impact on improving education outcomes than the taxpayer money being squandered on wealthy schools.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dale. Some of those uh, figures are really quite mind boggling. But in spite of the fact that these wealthy schools, or these schools for the wealthy, that are wealthy, um, have just got so, so very much money, doesn't doesn't mean to say that uh, they have particularly good schools. And of course, as we've seen earlier, uh, this whole question of discrimination is there. But the Christian Brothers schools, and let's call them that, they are Christian Brothers schools, have a number of schools in Victoria. There's Parade College, but there's also St. Kevin's, which is the uh, top of their little hierarchy. Uh, there's been some pretty awful things going on at St. Kevin's over the years. But in order to get a new, a new sheet, as it were, the uh, Christian Brothers now call themselves the Edmund Rice Education Australia. I think this is very interesting because Edmund Rice was the founder of the Christian Brothers but it, it sounds a little bit secular, doesn't it? It doesn't sound, well, it certainly doesn't sound like Christian Brothers.
3: Rebranding for the 21st century. Uh, that's what
0: it's called, rebranding, of course, because these uh, schools are definitely in, in, in business, uh, in a business, in the education business. Here we have a very interesting article that Sol is going to read us. Uh, Edmund Rice Education Australia issues an apology to parents at Victorian school. Over to you, Sol.
2: Thanks, Jean. So, this article is originally by Louise Milligan and Mary Fallon. And they write A, mil- a multi billion dollar body overseeing seven Catholic schools in Victoria, including Melbourne's St. Kevin's College, has written to apologise to parents after receiving a notice that it has failed to carry out its obligations under child safe standards. Or to demonstrate appropriate oversight of child safety. The process began in 2020 after St. Kevin's and its governing body, Edmund Rice Education Australia, EREA, were referred to the Victorian Registrations and Qualifications Authority, VRQA. Following a Four Corners investigation, Boys Club, into the school, which alleged a toxic culture that prized reputation over child safety. The notice to the EREA means it must now urgently reform its governance structure and ensure its schools undergo a review by the Catholic Education Commission of Victoria. The Four Corners investigation revealed that when St. Kevin's student, Harris Street, was abused by an athletics coach, the school's then headmaster wrote a reference for the coach to be read to the court after his 2015 conviction for grooming. St. Kevin's, then Dean of Sport, also gave character evidence for the coach, but Paris Street and his his friend, Ned O'Brien, who gave evidence in support of him, were not supported by the school when they appeared in court. Within a week of the story airing in February 2020, The headmaster, his deputy, the Dean of Sport and the Dean of Studies had all stepped aside from their roles and since then many other teachers have also had to resign. After the fallout of the story, the trustees of the EREA were required to enter into an enforceable undertaking with the VRQA that they would address the shortcomings in the organisation's governance which did not meet minimum standards under Victorian law. The letter from EREA sent to St Kevin's parents on Wednesday afternoon said these shortcomings were not adequately addressed by the trustees of the EREA within the agreed timeframes. That resulted in a notice being sent to the EREA in January this year because the letter to parents from the EREA chair, Philomena Billington, said the EREA had not carried out our obligations under the required child safety standards or structured our governance in a way that met our legal responsibilities, including providing a duty of care to students. It said EREA had also not complied with the timelines in the 2020 enforceable undertaking and had not demonstrated appropriate oversight of child safety at Victorian schools. She wrote, I would like to apologise on behalf of the EREA to each of you and to the Victorian schools, said Miss Billington in the letter to parents. As the governing body of the EREA schools in Victoria, it was our responsibility to make the necessary changes with focus and urgency within the required timeframes. While we made these changes, these were not enough. Speaking to Four Corners, Paris Street welcomed the the VRQA's decision. When child safety policies aren't properly followed in schools, it can have terrible consequences, said Mr Street, who is now 23. I had suffered those consequences, and I continue to do so many years down the track, he says. The VRQA notice requires conditions to be imposed on the EREA, including a restructure that all EREA schools be reviewed by the Catholic Education Commission of Victoria, and if they are not compliant with minimum standards, they must fix them within three months. EREA or a new provider set up the following notice. It is also required to provide the VRQA with minutes of all of its board meetings and to hand over financial information, including fee structure, to the Catholic Education Commission of Victoria. EREA is an extremely wealthy organisation, with an annual report from the end of 2020 showing the body which took over all of the old Christian Brothers schools had $3.27 in cash and cash-equivalent assets. The other schools run by the organisation in Victoria include St. Patrick's in Ballarat, St. Bernard's in Essendon, St. Joseph's in Geelong, St. Mary's in East St. Kilda, Parade College in Bundura, and St. Joseph's Flexible Learning Centres in North Melbourne, Geelong and Colac.
0: So this is very interesting. We're dealing with a fabulously wealthy organisation, the Christian Brothers, and they are responsible for the sexual um, abuse of large numbers of children. And they've got all these billions in cash that actually um, should be uh, available, I would have thought, for uh, the uh, abused children of the past. Uh, but instead of that, they've rebranded everything and they haven't really improved their uh, what's going on inside their schools. I can't understand why it is the taxpayers should be allowed to give these people one penny. Why? Why? Because their track record has been shocking and yet they continue and they still have all of this money in billions and billions of dollars and they take our money as well. I find it quite extraordinary that this is allowed to
2: occur in this country. Excellent point, Jean. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, Ms Billington said the EREA was satisfied that the individual schools were taking actions to embed a child-safe culture specific to their school environments. The EREA regrets that its lack of effective oversight and governance led to the imposition of the conditions. The Victorian schools deserved better, Ms. Billington said. We are working hard to correct this. It is ultimately a bittersweet development for Paris Street. I won't experience the effect of this change, he told Four Corners. But I hope it prevents what happened in my past from happening again. Yes, well, I think
0: we were very fortunate, weren't we, that our Four Corners exposed what had happened to that boy. But there were many, many, many children in the past that had suffered and we're dealing with a, an institution which has got $3.7 billion in cash and uh, is still taking enormous amounts, billions and millions and millions of money in, um, in uh, taxation from, from taxpayers of this country.
3: Extraordinary. Your taxpayer dollars, listener, your taxpayer dollars yeah. are going to these institutions.
0: Yes, well, the dogs aren't alone in being uh, outraged at the actual education system in Australia at the moment. Up there in Sydney, in New South Wales, the Reason Party has rebranded itself as the Public Education Party. If the Edmund Rice or the Christian Brothers can rebrand themselves, then I suppose other people can do the same. But the Public Education Party in New South Wales is standing candidates Uh, In the New South Wales election, I believe it's on uh, March the 25th, a very important election for public education in uh, New South Wales since neither uh, neither of the parties have really done very much for public education up there. And Kim is going to tell us a
1: little bit about this. Over to you, Kim. Thanks, Jean. Yeah, so this is the press release from the Public Education Party. Both major parties in the coming New South Wales state elections have flagged education as a priority area, but neither has a great track record of solving our problems. The Public Education Party has a real chance of getting one or more candidates elected if only the voters knew that we existed. We think that parents of public school children might be our biggest supporters, if only we could get the word out. So we plan to have a small group of supporters standing outside primary schools during the week 13 to 17th March. We would arrive about 15 minutes before the school bell goes and stay until about 15 minutes past. We want to target as many schools as possible over the five days. Meanwhile, we are still looking for volunteers to hand out at polling booths, on both on election day and during the previous week of early voting. If you can spare a few hours, it could make all the difference. Volunteers for polling booths should register at the website, which I will read at the end of this. Once again, we hate to ask, but we need more funds. We're running very short and we still have the how to vote sheets to print and materials to deliver to volunteers all over New South Wales. We think that children's education is so important and and only the public education party will put the issue as the number one priority. But we need funds to continue the campaign. You can find out more um, at the website www.publiceducationparty.org.au. That's www.publiceducationparty.org.au. Back to you, Jean.
0: Well, thank you very much. Uh, The dogs have sent some money up and we hope that some of our listeners might think this is a good thing to send money to after, of course, they have uh, sent money to 3CR. But we'll have a bit of a break and uh, Maddie's got some very interesting material for well maddie you can tell us the consequences of not funding public education sufficiently. over to you
4: i absolutely will this is an article from the guardian and it's entitled australian children facing higher student to teacher ratios at public schools than at private institutions it's by caitlin cassidy Public school students are learning in classrooms with higher student-to-teacher ratios than children in private educational institutions, sparking renewed calls to address the underfunding of government schools. The data released by the Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority, which is ACARA, found the full-time equivalent student-teacher ratio is 12.8 for private schools and 13.6 for public schools nationally. The gap is most striking in secondary education, where there are 12.4 students for each teacher at government schools compared with just 10.5 students at independent institutions and 12.2 at Catholic schools. At primary schools, there are 14.4 students for each teacher compared with 14 at independent schools and 15.4 at Catholic schools. The Greens spoke Spokesperson for schools, Senator Penny Ullman payne said the findings were a result of decades of underfunding for public schools that had widened the gap between government and non-government education. She said to attract teachers to public schools and provide a world-class education for students, governments needed to properly fund public schools and pay teachers a better wage. To tackle teacher workloads, the system needs to be resourced properly, she said. Right now, nearly every public school in the country is receiving less than 100% of the schooling resource standard, which is the minimum funding level required for students to achieve the minimum standard. Allman-Payne said funding to private schools had increased at five times the rate of funding to public schools. Ridiculous figure. The student-teacher ratio gap between independent and public education has remained stubborn for more than a decade with public teachers consistently teaching around two students a class more than independent educators. New South Wales public schools perform the worst for school ratios across all states and territories, with 14.2 students for each teacher across primary and secondary schools, followed by Western Australia. They are some interesting statistics, aren't they?
0: Well, thank you very much, Maddie. Uh, they're very interesting, those statistics indeed, and it's the consequence of underfunding of public education. But as we'll find out later, even though they're underfunded, they do a better job than the private schools. Our teachers in the public system actually are doing a better job with our children who are poorer on the more disadvantaged groups and so on, but that's the way it is.
5: But we're going to go overseas now, with Jeff. Yeah, thanks, Jean. And we're on to Glenna Ravitch's wonderful blog from the United States, which supports public education over there. And this is about the charter schools who are basically for-profit schools that try and leech money for the American taxpayer uh, to support their money-making schemes through the charter system, taking it away from public schools. This is an article by Leonie Hameson on March 5th of 23, and it's titled... Academy spends $13 million a year on marketing and recruitment. So she goes on. The pro charter media, especially anything owned by Rupert Murdoch, for example, the New York Post, continually boasts about the long waiting lists of students hoping to enroll in charter schools. New York City's City Success Academy charter chain, which posts extraordinarily high test scores, supposedly has a long waiting list. The tale was first told in a movie called The Lottery, which showed hundreds of parents entering their child's name in a lottery in hopes of winning a coveted seat in the school. The documentary was made by Madeleine Sackler, yes, of the same billionaire family that marketed opioids to the nation and became insanely rich. Leonie Hameson reveals in a recent blog post that Success Academy has enormous operation to market its, its schools, augmented by a division whose job is recruitment of students. She writes, One of the political weapons that charter chains and their hypesters in the media, like the New York Post, repeat like a mantra to support the push to expand their schools and eliminate the New York City cap on charters, is the dubious claim that they are, there are thousands of kids on their waiting lists. For many reasons, one should doubt the reality and relevance of these claims. As Chalkbeat points out, 58% of New York City charter schools lost enrollment over the past 3 years and 45% lost enrollment in the last year. This includes the most aggressively expansionist charter chain in New York City, Success Academy, whose enrollment has fallen by 7.7% in the last year. Moreover, as our charter school presentation and draft resolution explain, the claims of high demand and long waiting lists at charter schools are unconfirmed by any independent audits and are likely to include many duplicates. As to Success Academy, a research study revealed that only about 50% of the students who win the lottery to attend one of their schools choose to enrol, making the significance of what it means to be one of their waiting lists on one of their waiting lists even more dubious. In addition, the network was still desperately urging more families to apply to their schools through October of the current school year, revealing a shortage of students. They also recruit students outside the city for their charter schools, suggest- suggesting a lack of demand in New York City. Perhaps one of the successes, uh, success, big, success schools' big problems in keeping their seats full is their high rates of attrition, with 75% of students leaving from kindergarten on, and about 50% of those students who even make it to high school, departing before graduation, according to analyses done by Gary Rubinstein. In any case, in their determined effort to persuade as many families as possible to apply, whether or not they really intend to enrol, Success Academy has a whole team focused on recruitment. Um, There's the job postings for a scholar recruiter to join the scholar recruitment team, managed by the lead of scholar recruitment and reporting to a senior scholar recruiter. The scholar recruiter will execute field outreach programs and promotional activities in individually assigned New York City regional markets. A scholar recruiter will often be the first touch point to Success Academy for prospective families, making this team a critical contributor towards reaching our enrollment goals. One of the many responsibilities of this scholar recruiter is to identify, initiate, and maintain relationships with community based organisations, CBOs, and to develop CBO to Success Academy pipelines. Identify Success Academy as the premier educational choice in the community and cement Success Academy as a member of the community. The following metrics will be used to evaluate their performance. Scholar recruiters will be measured against individual performance indicators, including but not limited to, Gross application volume generated, generated among families who reside in their regional markets. Gross application volume generated to schools in their regiment, regiment, regional markets. Yield of regional applicant pool that is converted to enrolled status. Retention of enrolled families through the first 60 days of each academic year. Volume of applicant leads generated in their market. Number of new and, considering and continuing Community-based contracts established and maintained, segmented by type, e.g., social service, faith, faith-based, childcare, business, etc. Conversion rate of event attendees into applicants or long lead applicants. Regular submission of performance and marketing data, uh, data reporting. So it sounds like a school, doesn't it? Or does it sound really like a business? That's me. Anyway, back to the article. Success Academy also spends millions on advertising and marketing efforts to lure more applicants into their waiting lists, with ads running on TV, bus shelters, YouTube and Facebook concurrently. They send repeated mailings to families, sometimes as many as 10 to 12 times per year, after being given free access to DOE, uh, Department of Education, mailing lists despite vehement parent protests. DOE is the only district in the nation to share this info voluntarily. As evidence of their huge marketing efforts, they also have an internal marketing firm called the Success Academy Creative Agency. The Success Academy Creative Agency is a full-service brand strategy, marketing, and creative division within the Success Academy Charter Schools, SACS. Aligning business goals and creative and cultural trends, we partner with internal clients to define the value of value proposition, develop strategic insights, and create marketing campaigns and other creative content to help redefine what's possible in the kindergarten to year 12 public education. South uh, Success Academy Creative Agency itself advertises many openings, including senior copywriter, creative director, and leader of growth marketing, responsible for the design and execution of integrated demand strategies across our paid and organic channels. According to her LinkedIn profile, the success marketing office is headed by someone named Amanda Cabrera da Silva, who comes from Revlon, and as of Success Academy's 2017 IRS 1990, was paid over $200,000 per year. Does this sound like a school or a a consumer product? And I'll leave the, the listener to answer that question. And we're going to nip across the ditch. Again, I'm going to go to the home and heart and beginning and starting country of public education, at least in one interpretation, uh, Scotland, where they grossly really enhanced uh, public education early on uh, before England could read and write. Most Scots could. And there's a bit of good news. The Scottish Teaching Union, the EIS, suspends strikes amid a 12% pay offer. So they've actually won their 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 right to a pay increase that's above the inflation rate or at least matches the inflation rate. So uh, this is an article um, from PA Media in the uh, Guardian. So uh, it says, a Scottish teaching union has suspended its industrial action and urged members to accept a new pay offer. The Educational Institute of Scotland, EIS, union, is to ballot members on a revised pay offer from the local authority employers and the Scottish government. The union has recommended they accept the deal. A special meeting of the EIS Salaries Committee, comprised of teachers from across Scotland, took place on Friday and it was unanimously agreed to ballot members. The online ballot runs until the 10th of March. The General Secretary of EIS, Andrea Bradley, said, the view of our negotiators is that this this deal represents the best that can be achieved in the current political and financial climate without a much more prolonged campaign of industrial action. The new offer... We'll see teachers getting a 12.3% increase by April 2023, and it will rise to 14% by 2024. She added, it is through the determination and collective action of teachers and associated professionals across Scotland, led by EIS members, that we have improved this pay offer from an initial 2% for the current year to 7% for the current financial year, with additional increases of 5% and then 2% within the following financial year. This has been a long dispute which has been challenging for all concerned. Teachers have taken strike action as a last resort and that strike action has delivered an improved pay offer that the EIS can credibly put to its members with a recommendation to accept. It is now for our members to decide whether to accept this offer and it is our recommendation that they should do so. Responding to the decision by the EIS union to suspend strike action while the ballot is carried out, the Scottish Education Secretary shirley Ann Somerville said I welcome the EIS's decision to suspend industrial action while they consider this offer. This will end the the disruption to learning for our children and young people, particularly in the run-up to exams. We have worked closely with the unions to compromise and have arrived at a deal which is fair, affordable and sustainable for everyone involved. The Scottish Government is supporting this deal with over £320 million of funding this year and next. I would urge teaching union members to accept this historical pay offer which would see teachers' pay increase by 33% since January 2018. This is the best and final offer possible and recognises the, the invaluable contribution teachers make to the lives of our children and young people. So there you have it. So we'll wait, that's the article. Um, we'll wait to find out if the Tories in the South, in in in, the, in England and Wales and Northern Ireland, uh, will uh, look to um, increasing their... Uh, their pays like the Scots the Scots have recognized the value of teachers in public education uh, the Tories in the South have yet to do so and therefore the ending strike if it does end in Scotland may be a template for 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 the, for the overall UK but I I have my doubts as to whether the Tories will be as magnanimous uh, as the uh, as the Scots anyway good news from Scotland back to you Jean
0: well, thank you so much, Jeff, for giving us a perspective, an international perspective. But now we're back to the good news section. We always like to end on on a good, positive note for our public schools. And Dale's going to tell us about the NAPLAN results. They were very, very good in Victoria, but they're even better up there in New South Wales for public schools. Up over to you, Dale.
3: Okay, now I've got an article from the Sydney Morning Herald. NAPLAN Year Five results. The states. Top Schools Revealed. Public schools with and without opportunity classes, high-fee private institutions and Catholic schools in affluent areas have dominated the top 100 schools in the latest Year 5 NAPLAN results. While Advantage schools made up more than 90% of the top performers, dozens of schools across New South Wales have defied that trend to punch above their weight in reading, writing and math results. The Herald assessed New South Wales schools by their average Year 5 NAPLAN scores across five domains tested in 2022 and compared results based on a school's socio-educational advantage. The analysis considered ICSEA scores a measure of a school's level of advantage and this was developed to enable fair comparisons of results between schools. Of about 1,800 schools that reported Year 5 results, the Herald has looked at a selection of the top performers. Several schools, including Maryland Public, Harrington Street Public and Seven Hills Public, outperformed schools with students from some of the most advantaged backgrounds. St. John's Park Public in southwest Sydney beat several high-fee private schools, including Winona, Pittwater House and the King's School. St. John's Park School, which has 95% of students with a language background other than English, showed above-average literacy and numeracy results, compared with pupils of similar socio-educational backgrounds. Principal Diane Donatello said the school had worked incredibly hard to lift results with improvement in reading, writing and grammar in the past four years. We hold high expectations for all our students and dive deep into assessment and test score data to see areas that need improvement, Donatello said. Every five weeks across each grade, teachers look at the results of literacy and maths tests. Tasks and assessment tests to compare how students have performed. We have specialist teachers who had a, who had to work with small groups of students that need support in certain areas. Our main objective is to try to improve results for every student, she said. NAPLAN's just one test, but we do look at the results to track trends in performance. Former chair of New South Wales Education Standards Authority Tom Aliganaris said these said those schools that have a sustained and consistent approach, focused leadership and believe in their capacity to make a difference generally perform well. Clearly, we need to examine carefully what high-performing schools are doing to improve results, he said. Analysis of NAPLAN results has repeatedly found only slight differences in scores between public, private and Catholic schools and these differences disappeared once a student's family background was taken into account. University of New England Research released last year reached the same conclusion for primary students' performance, except that Year 5 students in public schools performed slightly better in numeracy than those in Catholic schools. New South Wales Education Minister Sarah Mitchell said the results vindicated the 900 million dollars the government had spent on small group tuition after months of learning loss during COVID-19. The data's clear. Despite the challenges of, of the past few years, New South Wales public schools are moving forward, Mitchell said. These results are thanks to the hard work of students and teachers supported by strong focus on literacy and numeracy through landmark curriculum reform. Through our school success model initiative, we look at what high-performing public schools are doing, and share their evidence-based approach with other schools to raise standards across the board. She said.
0: Well, thank you, Dale. That's uh, that's a good news story, and now we've got an even better one. Over to Maddie and the Great State School of the Week.
5: Every week on the Doctor's Program, we have a special segment. Show a different state school is a great school.
3: State schools are great. Schools. School of the
5: week, state school. School of the school. week, great state schools. State, state schools, schools, school are great of the schools. week, school for the week here on the Dogs Program.
4: And this week's great state school is Horsham College. Congratulations, Horsham College. Horsham College services a student population of over 1,000 students in years 7 to 12. Horsham College is the only government secondary school provider in the city of Horsham and surrounding areas. Horsham College is centrally located in the Wimmera and nestled next to the Grampians National Park and the famous Mount Arapils. Our students come from a number of local and smaller rural primary schools in the district and from diverse backgrounds. As you can tell, this excerpt is taken from the Horsham College website and I'm gonna keep reading from there. Students participate in a range of community activities and are encouraged to establish community connections. Horsham College is proud of a strong academic achievement, born of high expectations and a focus on learning, which is a central tenet of the school's values of care, commitment, collaboration, and character. The school has a long history of of successful achievement in all areas of learning and in a range of extracurricular activities, including sport, music, debating, public speaking and drama. A strength of the college is the breadth and depth of the teaching and learning programs delivered. These are based on the pursuit of personal excellence underpinned by a commitment to provide as many opportunities and pathways as possible that cater to the full range of our students' need and aspirations. I'm going to shoot some facts and figures at you from the ACARA My School website now. There are 1,016 students enrolled at Horsham College. The ICSIA value is below average at 976, but it is quite representative of the Australian community, with 8% um, coming from the upper quartile of parental income 19% in the second highest quartile, 30% in the third quartile and in the lowest quartile there is 43% of the students. So really it's a school which is quite representative of this rural Australian community. 6% speak a language other than English and 4% are Indigenous students. Now to finances. The Australian government provides annually $3.59 million. Victorian government provides $14 million. Fees and parental contributions amount to $179,000 and other private contributions are $398,000. It costs $18,135 per pupil to send to this school, which is above the Gonski Resource Standard. And NAPLAN results are excellent and they are well above average. So congratulations, Horsham College. You are our great state school of the week.
0: Oh, thank you so much. What a lovely story. And, of course, our public schools don't need rebranding in any way. They have served this country well and they're still doing so. The sad thing is, of course, that a lot of parents are believing the hype of the private schools leave a great deal to be decided. But uh, that's our program for this week I'd like to say bye for now and if you want to hear more about us, go to our website at www.adogs.info
6: I dream Joe says, I am standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I dead. Says Joe, but I dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. on to organize, from San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you'll find.